0: to create a listener
1: account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list we think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them please visit the site today hello and welcome back to the new books network gender studies Podcast. My name is Taylor Fox-Smith, and it's my great pleasure to interview today's esteemed historian, Robin Spencer, author of The Revolution Has Come. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network Gender Studies podcast. My name is Taylor Fox-Smith and it's my great pleasure to introduce today's esteemed historian, Robin Spencer, author of The Revolution Has Come, Black Power, Gender and the Black Panther Party in Oakland. A book that Robin Kelly has said tears down myths and distortions on virtually every page, Ms. Spencer has produced the first substantive account of the birthplace of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California. Spanning its 16-year existence, this book rewrites elitist accounts that narrowly defined the party by its leaders and its militarism. Providing a panoramic and critical lens on their organisational, organisational apparatus, Ms. Spencer's archival and interview research looks at the roles of gender politics in affecting the revolution, an internal and external activist project of overcoming oppression. Robin, thank you for taking the time to speak to us about your work today.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you for sharing information about my book and engaging the the ideas within.
1: Oh, well, thank you for giving us the ideas. I think <laughs> the first question I'd like to ask is if you could give us a small bio of your journey as both a scholar and an activist that led towards writing The Revolution Has Come.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I first learned about the Black Panther Party when I, when I was an undergraduate student um, in college upstate New York at SUNY Binghamton. Mm hmm. And it was really a time where I was becoming increasingly aware of just racial disparities, inequalities around me. It was my first time sort of being away from home. And I grew up in Brooklyn in a largely supportive, um, majority minority kind of community and going upstate, which was so, um, insular, so, um, challenging in terms of the racial politics there, it really was an eye-opener for me. And being in school at that time, I had the opportunity to learn about the Black Panther Party through reading an autobiography of Asada Shakur in one of my history classes. And it really, you know, it piqued my curiosity. She talked about state violence. She talked about going into exile. She talked about growing up in, in the Bronx and becoming part of this bigger black liberation movement and what this meant to her as a person, as a woman, and everything that she faced, it was very inspirational to me. And I started to just read as many things as I could. And at the same time, I joined the Black Students Organization. I joined the Caribbean Students Association and became involved on campus politics in that way. And when I came out of uh, undergrad and I went into graduate school, you know, it was very much a time where You know, there was a lot of activity going on. There was a lot of dialogue and discourse about feminism in the black community. Bell Hooks was big. Um, Gloria Naylor. People were just reading and thinking and talking about women and women's rights and what role feminism plays. At the same time, there was a lot going on in the community with everything from organizing against the Rodney King beating to the Central Park Jogger case in New York. And the end of apartheid in South Africa, it was really a time where I was just, you know, sort of taking in the world. And the book kind of came out of my worlds coming together, like looking into the historical record and seeing those silences and absences and understanding that we needed that legacy of struggle to inform what was going on at the time. So that's kind of how those worlds came together. sort of the scholarly me and the activist me and sort of led to the birth of the book.
1: Yeah, excellent. I think what the really great point you made there is kind of rectifying these silences in our historical record and also in the way that we look at present racial and gender interactions. And one of the great strengths of the book is the story that you bring to life through the urban hub of Oakland. And in the first chapter, the reader enters Oakland in 1944 by reading the local white newspaper that was bemoaning the new racial problem. And we could very easily have been reading that same headline in 2017 as we enter <laughs> <Yes>. Oakland. <laughs> so I think yes. that <laughs> so this story that you bring to life, the real strength of the historical narrative is that it's told through the voices and the mouthpieces of the Black Panther Party. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering if you could tell us why Oakland, I know you've done um, some fieldwork there, as Oakland kind of represents both a unique and an And a representative American city that was plagued by racial prejudice. But it became a hotbed for organized resistance that was different to everywhere else at the time. And also on top of that question, why you wanted to tell the stories through those voices with special attention to the often silenced women?
0: Definitely. I mean, Oakland, very much this is a a local story, you know, with national um, and international even implications. Oakland was really a unique place. It really drew me there. I remember when I took my first uh, trip to Oakland in 1996. And just when I went there, it was a place where you just had had to experience in person. Right. There was still a lot of evidence and remains from the southern migrants who migrated to Oakland after World War Two. Mm-hmm. Even when I went there in the 1990s, you could still see that history and legacy and the folkways and the food and the pace of life, the greetings, the, you know, just the way people spoke and, and moved, you know, it was a rhythm that was simultaneously an urban rhythm, but it had that sort of also this um, rural otherworldliness to it. And to me, that really was the... Way that I could understand how the Panthers grew in Oakland, California, thinking about the migrants of people who came there drawn by the industries that were created by the war, World War II, and the changes economically that happened after the war ended and the great promises of prosperity were unfulfilled. And it was a way for me to really understand what happened to housing in Oakland, And how the spatial politics of Oakland had an impact on the origins of the Black Panthers. Like, for example, in Oakland, the way in which the geography of Oakland, you know, juxtaposed Chinatown with the, you know, the poor Black community. And, you know, the impact of having a large Mexican population there in pockets of Oakland. And what did this mean? And what did it mean for Oakland to be there in proximity to Berkeley? Right. It's just this, you know, it's just the borders between Oakland and Berkeley are very permeable, permeable. And then also have San Francisco there across the bay as a seedbed for all sorts of student activism in San Francisco state. So to me, that was the uniqueness of Oakland is that it was, you know, it, its own it had its own local dynamics. It was part of these larger regional dynamics. I mean, Berkeley was the birth of the free speech movement, um, was a hub of the white left. San Francisco definitely had that reputation for Black radicalism as well. So to me, Oakland kind of drew drew on and sort of reflected all of those forces, yet was its, own, was its own unique place. And it was very important to get those voices out there, the voices from Oakland that could talk about police brutality, not just as something that was rooted as a new thing in the 50s and 60s, but something that went back and was connected to these earlier waves of migration and the way in which the states sought to control and confine the people who came there. Mm-hmm. Right. So thinking about um, using those voices to tell those stories were very important and especially women's voices. It was very important to me to, you know, let people know that let the readers know that black women were also victims of state violence, that they were victims of police brutality. And those were the stories that motivated people to get involved and be part of the Black Panther Party. That um, it was stories about unequal, unequal housing, poor education, police violence, as well as the upsurge, you know, against that from you know a war on poverty. Um, people who who organized in the wake of the war on poverty to really fight poverty uh, through the welfare rights movement. Uh-huh. And other local entities as well. So Oakland was a seedbed. I mean, it was such a rich soil for for so many different types of activism. At the same time, it was unique. It was, but it was also kind of representative of what was happening in so many other urban areas at the same time.
1: Yeah, I think the really interesting point about Oakland that you made before is the permeability of the borders with Berkeley and San Fran. And I think that speaks to another point that the book really takes home is that the Black Panther Party was both theory and practice. And one of the battlegrounds of that theory and practice was the use of self-defense by the Black Panther Party against the rampant police brutality and state violence that was suffered by African-Americans, both male and female. Mm -hmm. And in 1966, when the Black Panther Party was created, you talk about the 10-point program that they wrote. And point seven of that program was use self-defence against police brutality. However, in that action of self-defence and the theory of self-defence, there seemed to be, as you write in your book, an uncritical um, conformity to heteropatriarchy and this appeal to manhood and masochism that played out in the use of self-defence. I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that battleground for gender politics um, and mm-hmm. self-defence with the Black Panther Party.
0: Definitely. I mean, there was a long history, I think, of black women who picked up arms to defend their community, you know, dating back to people like Harriet Tubman, you know, who was liberating Mm -hmm. the enslaved. However, because the 1960s was a time in which you really had the rise of ideologies which were focused on restoring uh, a manhood that many felt had been Denied Through this legacy of slavery or through the economic realities of the time, which left black women um, oftentimes at the helm of their families, there was a real backlash against um, this ideal of, of women's strength and their ability and especially their ability to, de- to protect and defend uh, their communities. So I think for the Panthers, they really emerged in the context of all of those debates. On the one hand, there was the sense of protecting the community from police violence and who was going to do that. You know, and I think that initially there was really the sense in the um, Panthers based on their rhetoric that, of course, it was going to be the brothers who did that. Mm -hmm. Um, And many people, including women, felt like, well, that was the way it should be. At the same time, the question was, well, what role were women going to play and were they going to be equal partners in this or were they just going to be in the position of those who were weaker and needed defense, like women and children, you know, the the tired narrative of men protecting women and children. So to me, the Panthers were intriguing because they they challenged that they provided flexibility and different ways of interpreting that. When Tariqa Lewis joined the Black Panther Party as the first uh, woman to join, you know, she was given the same weapons training um, as the men, and she was able to gain respect from her prowess and what she was able to learn um, from that skill of self-defense. At the same time, there was always that tension there. I remember there's a song that Elaine Brown wrote And it said something like, we'll have to get guns and be men. And the question is, how how was strength defined within the organization? Was that strength, in fact, gendered? How did different women think about that at different times? And how did that change over time? I would say that there were certainly many activities that one could do and be as part of within the organization without, you know, using weapons or anything like that. But self-defense was something that was core to you know, what, what they wanted to do, especially in terms of challenging police violence. So incorporating women into that structure really transformed the structure. It wasn't just women with guns. It was, I think, women really challenging what it meant to be powerful, to be in control, to be defenders. And the intriguing thing for me is to look at how that's represented in things like their artwork, for example, show men and women you know, defending the community and all the different ways in which they kind of modeled um, this kind of diverse interpretation of what that meant uh, to the larger community.
1: I think this debate of how strength was defined is a really fascinating point. And in chapters three, four and five, the readers taken into I think quite dark times, a, a, an, an oppressive regime that was pursued by the FBI and their subset Pro, which really vilified the Black Panther Party as a violent group, and I think that this uh, strategy of self-defence cornered the Black Panther Party into an image of being overly <laughs> militaristic when, as you say, there were other ways in which men and women could contribute, which wasn't holding a gun and protecting the fort. And this gendered assumption that the party was led by men and that the brothers could take the role of protecting women and children, that outwardly militaristic image also saw many men leaving the organisation through whether it be arrest, imprisonment or exile. And this Mm -hmm. particular time saw a ripe opportunity you write in your book for women to step up into leadership roles I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you could elaborate on that relationship between state oppression and how that actually enabled women's increased power and increased ability to show and problematize strength as masculine and why that Mm -hmm. was important for the Black Panther Party in that period from the 1960s to the early 1970s.
0: Definitely. I mean, that, that was a time period in which the potential that the Panthers had for organizing Um, Because they were always an organization that wasn't just about rhetoric. I mean, they were building, they created a newspaper that was the most, one of the most well-known and popular underground newspapers to get that newspaper out meant that they had a structure of writers, of graphic artists, of people who would box up the newspaper, send them around the country, distribute the newspaper. That's just one example. But just to say they were organized, right? They were organized and they were an organization of growth. Um, as people around the country and around the world took up the name of the Black Panther Party. So in a lot of ways, as the Panther strength was growing, um, they became increasingly threatening um, to the federal government because of their identification of the structural realities of the time. So they didn't just speak in terms of we're against racism. They sourced oppression in the economic structure. So they talked about capitalism. They talked about socialism. They made connections with international revolutionaries. And I think all of this put the FBI on high patrol. And I think that's important to say, because I think typically people might focus on their self-defense stance, but it was more than that. I mean, that was part of it, but it was more than that. So as the Panthers are sort of Gaining this platform of visibility, the FBI responds with COINTELPRO, which is a coordinated campaign uh, with local police departments, federal police, FBI, um, to terminate the organization. Now, you know, in a very real sense, this leaves opportunity for women, because when the FBI and the local police forces are coming in to describe the danger that the Panthers are promoting, they are not necessarily seeing the danger in the ideological challenges they're making. Mm -hmm. They're seeing the danger in the armed self-defense. That's how they're sort of describing and and, uh, sort of ascribing it. So this means that, they are targeting the people that they see as targets, the people that they're identifying as sort of nationally known leaders with titles, right? They're assuming that everyone with a title is a leader. And if you don't have a title necessarily, you aren't a leader in that way. Mm -hmm. This meant that men were um, the most highly visible targets in the eyes of the FBI. And this meant that for women, they were able to step into the void that was left when Raids happened in offices. They were able to be part of the backbone of legal defense for people who were incarcerated. This does not mean that women were not also incarcerated. You definitely have women who were part of the New York Panther 21, for example. You have my original example of Asada Shakur, who was considered sort of the mother of the Black Liberation Army. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't that women weren't also targeted. It just meant that... Um, The women who were left behind were able to organize and step into the void, and they were really able to carry the organization forward, even as it was being attacked in this way. And I think that's something that's oftentimes not not focused on. The women in the organization were part of the reason uh, for its continuity, for its longevity in a lot of ways. And especially because the women as the Panthers were growing in this period that I'm describing, they launched many successful community service programs, their survival programs, as they call them. And women and men played an important role in staffing and organizing these programs all around the country. But particularly my book is specific to Oakland. In Oakland, women played a big role in in these community programs. So. Their visibility and their power was definitely something that allowed the organization to to keep carrying on um, during this time period, and it was important to note that they exercised leadership, even though per se they may not have had titles. Right, they took on the role of leaders, um, even without those formal mechanisms.
1: Mm-hmm. I'd love to actually press further with uh, the point about the community programs that women not only contributed to, but in their contribution, actually helped to reshape the image of the Black Panther Party. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you could maybe choose an example of one of those community programs. I know they're far and wide, and there are obviously many to choose from, including the breakfast mm-hmm. program, the health clinic, the school that they set up. Is there one that you'd like to uh, speak about just for a short time with us that perhaps women played quite a key role in?
0: Okay, I think... so. To think about women's uh, key role, I can talk about the, their educational efforts,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Because I think it also speaks to some of their organizational dynamics, right? So, of course, the Panthers grew in a context where the people who founded the Black Panther Party, Huey Newton and Bobby Steele, were very much, I mean, they were a product of the bad education system in Oakland, California. The, the you know, the moving around from school to school, the expulsions, the violence within schools, et cetera. So in a lot of ways, education became very, very key um, to what the Panthers were fighting against and also fighting for. In the early 70s, as the organization grew and people sort of grew into membership within the organization, remember it starts in 1966. By the early 1970s, you're four or five years in. Sometimes people are having relationships in the party that then lead to children being born within the organization. There were several married couples, you know, in the party in that way. So the question becomes now how these children are being discriminated against within the regular system of daycare and early childhood education as it becomes evident that their parents are Panthers. These Panther children become, you know, they the, the teachers are, are sort of um, discriminating against them. This is the first impetus for the Panthers' uh, schools. And it was really Black women within the organization who really stepped up to, one, um, demand that the organization sort of take a particular, um, you know, play a particular role in the education and protection of Panther children. And then when the Panther school um, became visible as a wonderful model of alternative education, other people outside of the Panther Party wanted to start going to the school. Mm -hmm. Right. Again, a reflection of how poor the schools were in Oakland and the fact that this Panther school was beginning to provide an incredible alternative and model. So you have women definitely playing a big role in the evolution of the Oakland community school. Uh, Erica Huggins, for example, Um, who was uh, one of the leaders of the school, the women who worked at the school um, within the administrative structure, people like Donna Howell. Uh, There were many men and women who played a big role in the school. And it's important to note that, you know, the school took care of these children in a way that allowed their parents to center their political activism, because now they didn't have to worry about their children's education And the education in the school was first rate. It was the school was visited by so many people, by Rosa Parks, Maya Angelou. It was featured in Jet Magazine as really this model of alternative education. Children within the school were grouped by ability, not age, which is, again, it's a progressive principle that we hear about today Mm -hmm. in progressive schools. Um, In the U.S., but for them at that time, it was pathbreaking to sort of make that kind of thing. The children within the school had a role in the governance of the school. Uh, There was a children's committee. The children um, ascribed discipline to each other and held each other accountable within the school. So in a lot of ways, it was not just a. You know, a building with. that that provided education, it was this alternative model of what education should look like. And Panther women were very key in, one, conceptualizing that educational plan and vision for the school, and two, in executing that plan. They were not the only one. There were many Panther men who were involved in the school at all levels. And they themselves, their activities in the school redefined, you know, manhood and what it meant to be an activist at the time. These men who dedicated themselves to teach, take care of children in the Oakland Community School or in the Child Development Center that they had as well, which was kind of a daycare. So the school, I think, really provided a place for men and women to kind of broaden, challenge and expand gender roles. But definitely it was the leadership of women that that made the difference.
1: This leadership is so interesting in these educational efforts because it not only straddles the community program and the survival through community self-determination ethos but also this idea of institutionalizing the activism and kind of permeating these boundaries between like community and governance and one of the ways that they the Black Panther Party also attempted to do this was through electoral politics and one of your chapters chapter six actually looks at Bobby Seale's attempt at becoming mayor, and mm-hmm. also Elaine Brown's campaign for city council. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really great how you put these two stories together, because I I think that campaign of Bobby Seale has kind of been absorbed into this uh, cultural memory of the Black Panther Party and the ways in which electoral politics were used to take the community efforts and put them into an institutional place that can possibly affect more change. But also the fact that Elaine Brown was part of that story and there were community efforts that bolstered both of their attempts to enter government at the local level. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if we could elaborate on Elaine Brown there and what that electoral political story that she's a part of means for the gender politics of the Black Panther Party but also the institutionalization of the Black Party at lo- of the Black Panther Party at large. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, wonderful question. I mean, I think the the shift towards electoral politics I think is is such a fascinating case story of how black power evolved. And it's important to note that the Panthers even in their early years participated in electoral politics. They ran for third party campaign offices with the Peace and Freedom Party. Um Huey Newton ran, Eldridge Cleaver as well as Kathleen Cleaver ran for offices, gaining thousands of votes. Of course, the goal of their third-party campaign was not necessarily victory, but to raise awareness, to get publicity, and to sort of create an ideological challenge. Now, when we get to the 70s and it's Elaine Brown running, the goal for those campaigns were actually to take power, right? The idea was that Oakland would become this base of operations, would become this liberated community, and concentrating on what progressive black elected officials could do if they were elected to to these offices. So it's important to note that it wasn't just Bobby Seale's mayoral campaign, which, of course, was very important, but also Elaine Brown's campaign is essential as well. And I think the story of how the Panthers organized that campaign from the voter registration efforts that they mounted, which were tremendous, incredibly organized. The precinct work that they did was, um, you know, just incredible. They registered tens of thousands of people to vote at that time. They went out and they knocked on doors. They went on buses. They stood, you know, on street corners at bus stops. They went to churches. It was really a wide scale attempt to gain the support of the community and I think especially with Elaine Brown's campaign, that's important to note because the position that she was running for was really central. And the idea was that it wasn't just about having a mayor, you know, Bobby Seal as mayor, or even a black mayor, that was accountable to the people. It was about putting as many people as possible into roles where they could have a you know have a way of bringing the voices of the community to bear on the larger political scene. So in addition to Elaine Brown, you have people running for school board, presidents, um, people running on different local levels to be part of urban renewal efforts. The idea was at all levels to try to transform what politics looked like in Oakland. And um, to me, it's a very powerful initiative
1: In the wake of those electoral political battles, um, neither Elaine Brown nor Bobby Seale won the seats they were vying for. However, there did appear to be um, for the Black Panther Party a real time of struggle. A lot of resources had been put towards uh, the campaign for both of these individuals And in your chapter seven, you look at the demise of the Black Panther Party. So this is the period between 1977 and 1982. And you make a really interesting point through a really interesting use of historical sources. And that's the role that loneliness played in the demise of the Black Panther Party. And there's a really interesting story there about the Black Panther Party's unspoken dating policy and the insularity that that dating policy inflicted upon its members. I'm wondering if we could talk about that for a little bit.
0: Sure. I mean, I feel like what I wanted to do with the book was really kind of give this kind of inside out view. And I think sometimes the the macro politics of it all, I mean, certainly the economy was changing in the late 1970s. The potential for revolutionary change felt different. At this time, certainly all of those things were true, even the global situation. It was not the heightened years of Vietnam and African liberation as it was in the late 60s by the late 1970s. But to me, it was really fascinating to think about it on the micro level. And what did it mean to be part of this political organization? And where were you by the late 1970s? If you start in 1966, by 1976, you are 10 years in. hmm. And perhaps you've dropped out of school and, and all of that. And you have lived within that organization. So the question about dating was very important. Now, what came out when I read uh, the letters that people would give in as they left the organization, people talked about how significant it was, how they were able to form the social relationships that they did within the organization, how those really those relationships sustained them. They were committed not just to the ideas, And not just to the community that they served, but people are committed to each other, you know, as a collective, as a, as, you know, as comrades. And it came out uh, in some of those letters that. The Panthers unspoken dating policy of women limiting their choice of partners to people within the organization. And men were not reciprocating in that same way. Mm-hmm. So the simple numbers game meant that if men are looking outside and inside for relationships or women are solely looking inside, you know, one could quickly see how this be- could become an area of turmoil. And, you know, people talked about how there was that assumption that if a man dated a community sister, as it was called, that, there was a high possibility that that sister would become politicized and join the organization. Mm -hmm. But if a woman dated outside of the organization, there was a sense that that man might question her political commitment or make demands on her that would allow, would mean that she could not be as fully immersed in her world as a panther and potentially be drawn outside. And the women spoke about how betrayed they felt Um, how they felt that being a Panther had transformed just even what they did every day. Right. So they were be, you know, they were full time Panthers 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that meant that they, you know, there wasn't, you know, date night or any of these other (laughs) sort of mainstream ideals around what a relationship might look like. There was political work, there was joy, there was humor, You know, there was all of that, but it wasn't it was understood in a different kind of way. And they felt like it was only Panther men who could understand and relate to the demands, the pressures, the commitments that they had um, within within the organization. So this ideal of loneliness um, was very, very central as something that drove people out of the organization. Loneliness in terms of the, you know, the romantic relationships they wanted to form. Also, people talked about wanting to spend more time with their children. Mm-hmm. Um, if they had children at that time, that that would be a reason. People also spoke about some of the hierarchies within the organization, um, bail money and who got bail money or how fast. If you were doing party work and you're still facing repression and you get arrested, how fast was the legal defense coming to get you out? Where did you fall on the priority list? You know, people felt. Um, In a real sense that their commitment to the organization and the deep love that they had um, for the mission of the organization oftentimes was not enough by this time to sort of bolster them against the way in which these very real world concerns were sort of eating out that commitment that was there. Um, Lots of examples in that time of people talking about um, just bringing the community in more we need more members, we need more, you know, we're shrinking. It was very clear that things were shrinking at that time. And the avenues of bringing new people in were difficult, which again makes the dating situation even more fraught, right? Because if the numbers are shrinking, and again, um, you know, that's sort of a shrinking uh, pool, pool of people, um, you know, that you're connected to.
1: And I think the point you make about wanting to step beyond the macro view, like we have economic and political contexts that are urban, national and international, which obviously framed the Black Panther Party. But through the inside out approach that you've taken, we can actually start to gauge the personal toll of the organisational apparatus, but also the personal toll of resistance and the personal toll of fighting against these oppressive forces that can sometimes seem so much larger than any human action we can uh, muster against it. And I think that this really intimate view of the way in which the Black Panther Party not only shaped and bolstered these people's lives, but it was also not easy every day and there were challenges that were both political and personal. You mentioned in one of your concluding paragraphs that this is needed history, and I think after the past half an hour it's very difficult, in fact, impossible to dispute that. What do you think or what do you hope that your book can provide to both activists and scholars who are in resistant movements today or are feeling as though they want to be part of something bigger to fight either ideologically or on the ground against current political contexts? um maybe even in relation to black lives matter or your own work with students or other activists in your own community and communities in america i'm wondering how your book and how your work you wish or how you think it's playing into the current context of that
0: excellent question i mean i feel like in some ways this book is right on time yeah in terms of of what it has to what it has to offer First of all, I think organizational history is so important. There are a lot of outraged individuals out there, many of whom are newly activated, let's mm-hmm. say by let's say the results of the US elections or Brexit or or whatever, but they're new to the movement, let's say or new to seeking organized ways of resisting. Mm-hmm. And I think as an organizational historian and who's written a book about the life and death of this organization, it shows the importance of that kind of discipline. I think today there's so many different ways of becoming involved. You can click on a link. You can send money here. you You can do many things that oftentimes never involve seeing another human being. However, I think this idea of the Panthers being in community, even if that community was contentious, it was hierarchical, it was problematic, but being in community, the fact that people lived together, the fact that they, you know, sought to work out what it meant to, you know, have the feelings that they had within an organization to bring in everything that they had as part of them growing up in the societies that they did. So as individualists, as people who were, committed to a certain gender ideology, the Panthers really tried not just to organize people to do political work, but they also tried to transform how one thought about that work and how, and how even one defined what work was Mm -hmm. because in the Panthers, political work was not just the work that you did outside of the Panther homes and the communities with the people. Political work was also the work you did behind closed doors uh, when you were interacting with your comrades and housemates, who was going to wash the dishes? You know, who was going to cook the food? Who was going to take care of the children? These became big political questions. and I think oftentimes there's the sense that there's sort of a hierarchy of political value placed on things. And certainly things like childcare and interpersonal issues are seen as secondary, right? And I think that it we're at a moment where, We have movements, not just saying Black Lives Matter, but the reminder of say her name. That you know there is this way in which Black women's uh, roles as victims of state violence, as victim of interpersonal violence, has been left out of this narrative of the violence that is you know is being faced. And how do we bring all of those things together? And I think that the Panthers' history provides a window into how to create a movement that was trying to be the world it was going to become. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I feel like the movements today certainly have a more inclusive language around queer issues, um, homophobia, transphobia. There's definitely more um, discourse around that kind of inclusiveness about the need to be broad, about the need to be um, horizontal. The Panthers were very much a top-down organization. And in some ways, as we see in the course of my book, that did not serve their larger political mission, right? So in a lot of ways, I feel like looking at the Panthers sort of rise and fall sort of should hold up a mirror to organizers of today as they try to take the best from the Panthers' legacy and move forward into what is certainly a very different political uh, political climate. Yeah, Excellent.
1: So I think that we've come to the final question, which is now that this wonderful book is out for us all to read, what is next for you on your scholarly and activist journey?
0: Well, I have... Become more and more aware of the way in which international events sort of have a huge impact on the social movements that happen in the U.S. and vice versa. Mm-hmm. My newest project is on the movement against the Vietnam War in the black community in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And it really looks at how people of African descent in the U.S. tried to have this global vision of justice. And I think when Um, All of the protests were rising around Ferguson and Mike Brown and Trayvon Martin and how that was shaped by what was happening in Gaza, for example, and different parts of the world. And the way in which activists sort of came together in this dialogue and realized the ways in which they were really arrayed, you know, the forces that were arrayed against them were the same forces, And even, I think, when we think about corporations like or multinationals like that provide security on the Mexican border, that provide security in private prisons, that provide security in the West Bank and in the separation wall, you can really see all of those connections being made. And for me, my new project is really about those kinds of connections. How did activists in the U.S understand Vietnam as a struggle that was not just happening in Vietnam, but that was so relevant to everything that was happening in the U S at the time. And that I think is sort of reflective of some of the ways that my activism has been leaning towards, as well as some of the gaps, again, that I see in the scholarly literature, which tends to assume Again, that when we think about anti-war activism, we're thinking about two men, Muhammad Ali, um, who's coming out against the draft and Dr. King, who's breaking silence in the late 1960s, speaking out in Riverside Church against the draft. I'm trying to bring in earlier actors, lots of women, grassroots people in urban areas who were talking about anti-imperialism and anti-Vietnam before that point.
1: Well, that also sounds like another book that's very well-timed. The internationalist perspective, I think, is something we often lose sight of, and there are possibly ties for solidarity that we're not seeking out if we are insular in our understandings of activism. So thank Mm -hmm. you so much for sharing with us. All the amazing things that you have come to conclusions about, and the revolution has come. Where can we follow where your journey comes next? Do you have a web page or a Twitter that any of our listeners could possibly follow and find you on?
0: Yes, wonderful. Please follow me on Twitter at Race So, Race, R A C E, Woman, W A M A N, and S I S T, at Race Womanist. On so woman, Twitter, And then I do have a website for the book, which is just the title of the book. So it's www.therevolutionhascome.com.
1: Thanks so much, Robin. Thank you so much for your time and for speaking with us. We really appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much, Taylor. I appreciate it.